Welcome everyone to the Deep Dive, the podcast that skips small talk and goes straight for the concepts that shape our thinking and behavior. In this podcast, cold expertise is defenestrated as warm philosophy is enthroned in an attempt to explore the field in which we're all scientists looking for answers, living well. Another episode of the Deep Dive with Eyal Shai. My guest today is Brian Cam. Hi, Brian. Hi, Eyal. How are you? I'm really good, and it's really good to have you here finally. Um, what is an idea that has helped you live well that you'd like to uh, build on today? Lately, I've been thinking about the connection between philosophy and literature, especially just fiction, I suppose, generally. And that's something that I've been thinking about, I could probably say for almost 20 years now. So it's been a longstanding interest, but I feel like they're starting to dovetail in quite important ways in my life right now. Yeah. So could you maybe take us to the beginning of that period of time, this 20 year long period of time and see, uh, look at the beginnings of how these two ideas uh, mingle? Yeah. So as a child, I was a voracious reader. I loved fiction and read all sorts of fantasy, sci-fi, classics, probably some things I shouldn't have been reading <laughs> from my parents' shelf, uh, you know, Stephen King and things like that, but also just old classics that I think because my parents thought these are old enough that it, they're probably fine, but <laughs> maybe shouldn't be something that children should be reading, basically. So I remember reading Dumas, The Three Musketeers, and things like that when I was, you know, 12 or something. And they're quite violent. There's a lot of sex and there's all kinds of stuff in them. But my parents just had this default assumption that if it was old, it was probably okay, <laughs> which is like, uh, yeah, kind of approach. interesting approach. Yeah. And got me a lot of exposure to, yeah, just... Um, a wide variety of literature. I was always a very wide reader. And when I got to university, I thought I would want to study philosophy. And this was something that I knew a little bit about because in high school, I was lucky enough to have a philosophy class in my final year that was pretty much just like a very, very broad brush overview of Western philosophy. It was very Western based. But that had kind of piqued my interest in, in my teen years. And then I thought when I got to uni, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to study philosophy. But when I got there and took my philosophy 101 course, it was in logic. And this is so different from, you know, any of the stuff that I gotten interested in, you know, not just the, you know, Plato and Aristotle kind of early stuff, but also I had been exposed to Schopenhauer and Nietzsche and all these other people and these kind of wild ideas. And when we got into this introductory logic course, I thought, I actually can't do this, basically. <laughs> so I wound up uh, studying literature, which was, a, you know, in interesting ways, another way to look at philosophy, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's remarkably the same, the experience for me. I started uh, as a double major of English literature and linguistics, which is one major, and wow. then philosophy is another. Um, and very quickly, I realized that just 
just saying who said what kind of he said that he said that is also not satisfactory mm. and um, I was also disillusioned with how things are taught in the in at uni so um, I I feel you there that's fascinating and, <laughs> yeah so I dropped and then I started I just yesterday recorded with my friend and mentor Ivor and we kind of recounted my journey through university and how I met him. Um, mm, I mentioned mm. him on um, the Twitter spaces that we had together. Yes. Um, anyway, it's um, a really and interesting he, connection for, yeah, sorry. And he, was this the Plato paradigm that, that he did? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, he's, um, he's the one who taught me dialectic as well. Um, so I really like the connection that you're making the dissatisfaction with philosophy as kind of a thing that's actually quite unrelated to living mm. well in a yes. body with a mind and and so on and yeah i'd like to hear uh from you what what kind of direction you took after that yeah so as i was kind of saying i i tried to seek it out in other ways outside of the philosophy department and i think that was what led me to a few different avenues. One was I took a class on Chinese intellectual history to the fifth century AD, which covered Confucianism and Taoism and all these other things that were quite wild compared to anything I'd learned in the sort of very basic Western philosophy that I'd taken. And I also wound up studying Russian literature in translation. So I was doing Tolstoy. In fact, my um, dissertation was on even though it was in the English department, I was nominally writing on Thackeray's Vanity Fair, but I was specifically looking at how his work relates to Tolstoy's War and Peace. And I was allowed to do that. I was allowed to do a lot of things that <laughs> were slightly <laughs> unusual, basically, at university. And uh, so it was kind of this interesting search for philosophy that led me to put together pieces outside of a philosophy department that somehow in my mind were still philosophical. I think it's quite fair to say that um, the 19th century Russians, especially Dostoevsky and Tolstoy are quite philosophical. And uh, yeah, I just met someone from the II the other day and I asked her what her favorite philosopher was. And she answered Dostoevsky, which I, <laughs> I loved because you know, he's a sort of novelist, but he is deeply philosophical. And this led me to think about the relationship between philosophy and literature, because in a way, some of these great novels, whether it's War and Peace or Crime and Punishment, they are attempts, they take a philosophy and they bring it to life through their characters. Tolstoy right. explicitly said that Schopenhauer was a major influence on him in the 1860s when he was working on War and Peace. And so he really took a lot from Schopenhauer. But more than that, it's almost like if you think of Schopenhauer as giving you in, in his major work, The World and as Will and Representation, he's giving you kind of the tools you need to build an outlook on life. And that would relate to what you were saying about the kind of pursuit of good living. But Tolstoy then shows you what the world would look like through that lens. So what I've been thinking lately is that philosophy is kind of a, a way of 
building a lens on the world from a text or from a from a tradition and fiction might be a way of almost like taking a picture through that lens if that makes sense yeah absolutely and not just a picture but but a whole immersive uh video for those of us with uh, with a good enough imagination i mean you can test out all sorts of hypotheses right like uh crime and punishment is basically looking at this person with um who has this idea and decides to act on it which mm. we, which we which we don't usually right and then you see things and because these uh great writers are so good at characterizing their characters and sticking with it and being very very precise and consistent about representing them mm. they really they really give you a character that's almost as real as somebody in your life right and you and they they give you an insight into their psyche and what happens and it's realistic enough that you feel that you've learned something without having to actually commit crimes or whatever <laughs> the, whatever the plot may may include and it's really interesting because coincidentally i just read um an article about Tolstoy being the greatest philosopher which is really mm. interesting and wow. in that in that article they mentioned that he wrote explicitly a lot of questions like the life's biggest questions he enumerated them and said that he was um attacked by a midlife crisis and he was very surprised because he was already very successful and then he couldn't find the meaning of life and so it mentioned uh a, a book that's not well known by him that's i'm not sure what the title is in english but it should be something like a book club so okay. he basically he basically tried to he anthologized like a lot of writings and mm. um wove them into uh, a book with 365 sections yes. so one for each day of the year mm. that you should open and to him that was uh, basically some sort of philosophical bible like he put in the works that he thought were most worthy um of being read by anybody who wants who wishes to to live well find meaning for their lives and so on yes i think in english it's called a calendar of wisdom and as you say mm, it's okay. it's a fascinating work i actually sort of was hoping there would be a website of it or something like that and then when i found that there wasn't i was kind of like this thing's probably in the public domain wouldn't it be a cool project to you know get a website up that just you know you load it and it just shows you tolstoy's reflection from that day because and he you know i think one of the first ones is from from laoza the dao de jing and that was you know he yep. was influenced by taoism and it was funny that you know by being almost not quite forced out of the western philosophy department but you know feeling that i was disconnected from it what i ended up finding you know in terms of taoism and and tolstoy as you say he he really did generate his whole own life philosophy he had a kind of radical christian a, a radical he almost he founded a religion essentially which was called like tolstoyanism or something and he had all these converts coming to him so he was a quite quite a fascinating figure yeah yeah absolutely so it's very interesting that your friend and uh, this person at the 
at the newspaper I was reading both uh, recognized these amazing Russian writers as actually as philosophers. Mm. And I don't doubt that at all. Um, what, what would be for you another development in, in thinking about this connection and or maybe some exploration that you made into, into the, the subject matter? So I could give quite a few examples, I think. I was also going to come back to one of your points about just perspective taking, because it's such a great way to train empathy. And as, as you say, mm -hmm. you can almost simulate a life, as you were saying, with Crime and Punishment. But I also think that it's these books like Crime and Punishment or War and Peace or Middlemarch, which is another one that I'm about to talk about. They're so long and they took so long to write. They took years to write and they were serialized that you kind of end up living part of your life with these characters in a way that you don't with shorter pieces of fiction. You know, it typically takes, you know, weeks or months or maybe even a year to read one of these massive novels. And so you almost become embedded in this very, in another way of seeing the world. And, and in the case of the great Russian literature, especially Tolstoy, often in many different ways of seeing the world, because the characters themselves conflict with one another, and they also change over the course of their lives. And so I just think that that, you know, it relates to the kind of generation of philosophy, because you can see each of these characters trying out different philosophies and growing and what, and what they learn from them. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's exactly immersive, I think, it is the word for these um, epe, which would be the plural of epos. Mm. Um, but epics, I guess, in English. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's it's so important. Like the, I think the the need for immediate gratification, reading a short thing, which I definitely um, understand. Like for me, there is a lot of merit in writing a short something that can kind of rattle you and make you think. But there's yes. also you're right. There's no replacement to that sense that you have been living with with these people, as you say. That's beautiful. Like mm. I remember. Um, in James Joyce's um, autobiographical book, is it called Stephen Hero? Like that's the name he gave himself. Mm, I can't mm. remember what the name of the book is, but there's one chapter that's just about a, a time when he was punished by uh, a teacher at Jesuit school. Oh wow! And it's so long. Like you, you read it, and it's it's really just stopping to go over the details of like how much it hurt him when the ruler hit his wrist. And it's just in a in a sense of like just driving the plot or something, it's meaningless. Like it's just this thing that could have been written with two pages. But by the time you you end the section, you realize that the sheer length of it and and the fact that it was so unpleasurable to read mm, because you mm. sympathize with him. Um that that exactly is the point. Like that's how bad it felt. So <laughs> It's 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 really interesting, and these people were not apologizing for making you feel undesirable emotions. Like mm, literature was mm. not about making you feel great about yourself. Yes. It's not about entertainment. It's like James Joyce is taking you, putting you in his shoes, and making you feel the. Um, yeah, how indignant he was and how pained he was by this experience. And um, this is amazing. And this is 
in a way philosophical in the sense that philosophy should be embodied it's not a cold mm. thing that's mm, outside mm. of you um that's there so you're right anyway that's that's the connection i'm making yeah and it's fascinating that you raise short fiction because by the end of his life tolstoy had kind of repudiated his own work uh you know, the long novels, War and Peace, Anna Karenina, and said that the only thing worth saving in his output were some of these short stories like Alyosha the Pot that were, they're quite jarring stories. There's another one called How Much Land Does a Man Need? And they do they do drive a, a point home, I suppose. Um, the Death of Ivan Ilyich is a little bit longer than those ones, but it's another one that you know, is almost unforgettable to read, even though it's it's not as long as the other novels. And um, you asked about another example. And the one that I've just learned about recently is George Eliot, who wrote Middlemarch, another of these mammoth 19th century novels uh, that I just adore. I think it probably is the best. It's certainly the best novel I've read in English. And I have read quite a few, I think it's fair to say, and I love that book. But I only recently learned that George Eliot translated Spinoza and saw and saw the ethics as a kind of, it, it changed her and she, she wanted to show what a kind of new humanistic philosophy would look like. And this was part of the project of Middlemarch. So that too, just as, as Tolstoy was saying that War and Peace was his attempt to embody or almost enact Schopenhauer, you could say that George Eliot was doing the same for Spinoza, who's another thinker that I, I'm kind of obsessed with both both Schopenhauer and Spinoza, actually. <laughs> so, Yeah, so I'm interested in hearing from you um, what would be something that you felt... Uh, was aided by kind of getting into the shoes of a character or being uh, given a window into their psyche or something mm, like that. Mm. And also whether you have you at all experimented with uh, thinking about philosophy in these terms, like hearing about an idea and maybe uh, making up, coming up with a scene in your mind that better drives the point than just the dry logic? It's a great question. So I would say what I got from both Tolstoy and George Eliot is this sense of aging. They're both novels that, you know, they last so long. They kind of follow the trajectories of these characters over, over their lifetimes. And to read that when you're, I think I was probably about 19 or 20 when I was reading those books. And it allows you to see what commitment to an idea is like. So Pierre, for example, goes through this Masonic phase and then he goes through a kind of hedonistic phase and then he goes through a more religious phase and a philosophical phase. And, you know, he goes through all these phases. And I think even at that time, I, I probably couldn't have articulated it at the time, but that sense of search and holding on to worldviews lightly maybe is something that I do think informs the way I lived my life and the way I learned about these philosophies, which was, I was always interested in different points of view, but I didn't like to cling to any of them too tightly. And I would say that 
that insight is less from anyone that I've met in my life advising me to do that. And more so from seeing characters like Pierre in War and Peace or seeing characters like Dorothea in Middlemarch go through the disillusionment that comes with having held too closely to a certain perspective. Oh, that's that's beautiful. That's so beneficial. I mean, um, I've had the, this conversation on this podcast with my friend Nikolaus, and he kind of charted his path that he went through and going through Zen Buddhism and then mm. other things, and each time kind of shedding it for a new thing until mm. you realize that there is really something that's always beyond the path, like no path should you count on any path to be the one that you follow for a long time because mm. it always kind of takes you into these um, tough spots to navigate and you finally you finally make a, a mistake ethically because you hold a, an idea too dearly. Um, yeah, this is interesting. And I think it's also, as you say, allowed by the fact that it's not a snapshot in time of just mm. a whole worldview that you read and then apply in your own life you like hit play and then live your life accordingly right instead mm. you get uh, a character that develops through time and that's also super important i think for young persons to be able like yeah maybe we're hooked by the fact that this is going to speak about a person who's coming of age that's kind of relatable to us but mm. when you're young and you still don't even have a sense of history it's maybe even more important to see a character um, grow into their 30s, 40s, 50s, and sometimes uh, near their deathbed. And it yes. just kind of wakes you up to the, to the reality that, yes, you are going to go down some um, trajectory. You're going to follow a trajectory by holding onto these things. And these things have consequences and maybe gives you a sense of historicity. Yes. And I love that point about historicity. I mean, War and Peace, not to go on forever about this, but it is a novel that contains big essays in the middle of it that are more like historiography or philosophy that, you know, he's arguing against this great man theory and against the kind of, it's almost like an opposite view from, from Crime and Punishment because they're both in a certain sense about individualism that comes with Napoleon and Napoleon right. is kind of seen as this, you know, figure that by his own force of will comes to dominate the world. And in crime and punishment, you have a single character who attempts quite explicitly to do this himself and, you know, doesn't end very well. And in war and peace this, this, to disregard, um, disregard convention and law, basically. Yes. Because the, the great man is simply above these things and should exactly. obey to anyone. Yeah. Exactly. And the, and the kind of implicit idea that the great man is also the driver of historical movements or, mm. you know, the, all of history rests on this small number of individuals. And War and Peace is very much about dismantling that idea, the great man sort of theory of history and trying to show how complex it is. But it can be quite difficult you know, you could take this argument of, let's say, you know, the naive or, or, or the default position being that Napoleon drove all these events in the 19th century and try to pick it apart with all these minuscule details. But that's actually not as, uh, 
persuasive as producing a new story. And so this is another way in which I'm thinking about story and philosophy, because, you know, at the moment we have sort of cries of uh, a crisis of meaning or, you know, that the narratives are collapsing or, you know, we have narratives, uh, attempts to argue with narratives dominant or otherwise that are based on sort of nitpicking or, or trying to show that the details are wrong. But what we lack is perhaps like a more powerful narrative that might embody something newer, you know, that, that for the current moment, if that makes sense. And I think it should be in that sense, (laughs) a work work of fiction, at least broadly understood. Right. Yeah. I mean, that, that makes total sense. And really could, could, could there be, I mean, I know that uh, thick books are still being written, but it's (laughs) definitely not, not the preferred uh, medium today or not the, pop medium that's for Mm. sure whereas when these books were released i think they had widespread uh, readership and yeah you're so right i don't think there is any replacement to to that um immersion in somebody's world that's going to take you through this journey and it just teaches so much because if you're just being told one thing don't do this do that and it just kind of stays so abstract that you can't really imagine what it's like to go down that path or, or the other path. And these offer you uh, a view into, in some sense, your own future, should you decide to do certain things and kind of charts of possible uh, possible futures uh, for you. So that's, mm-hmm. that's a really interesting idea of, in terms of to think about where this is going today. And I, I don't know, do you see anybody attempting that consciously? It's a great question. I mean, there are the, as you say, there are these sort of long books. I I feel that to some degree, sometimes I think it's Hollywood or just the use of cameras sort of that has brought the third person from that kind of godlike position that it had in Tolstoy or Dickens, you know, you can't mm-hmm. really imagine someone writing a sentence like it, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times and, and be taken seriously. It kind of takes this, you know what I mean? It, it's got this kind of yeah. layer of godlike, <laughs> you know, <laughs> observation. Whereas we now typically get, you know, a very close up view, even when it's a third person narrative, it's almost like you're glued to a single character's perspective. And so I think mm-hmm. there is a kind of, difficulty with that one one possibility would be series that can pr- portray a lot of different viewpoints i mean uh tv series i mean and tv series also have this a similar kind of novelistic element in that they take a long time to watch right or at least potentially the one that i was sort of immediately thinking of is the wire which has all these different sort of threads going on at once and, and paints a, a picture of, with many different conflicts going on but i don't know whether i i wouldn't know to whether anyone is consciously trying to convey a specific philosophy through through a tv series it would be yeah can you think of any or <laughs> um well i don't watch a lot of tv first of all um but i think that's not the no i think that's mm. kind of what a 
mentioned before that these people cared more about making you feel an emotion that was um, fitting for you to feel in order to learn something. Well, today the focus is on entertainment, right? Mm, and mm. it's it's very shallow in this way, usually, or 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 it's way too um, didactic, kind of, mm, right? So mm. with the reality shows, you you just get the sad piano tune, and you know, <laughs> oh, it's yes. time for me to shed the tears. Like this person has uh, has gone through some shit in their life. Um, Actually, yeah. So one... I think I think that's really missing. Mm -hmm. There's something I wanted to ask you, which is, you and I have talked about Plato before as a kind of dramatic form that employs different literary devices. I just wondered whether you thought that Plato might also fit into this category of sort of bridging the gap. Not, not that it's using, you know, kind of novelistic elements, but if it's using dramatic or theatrical elements to bring, to, to bring philosophy to life, that could Absolutely. be considered literary in a way, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, he wrote dramas. He wrote uh, dramas in in prose, and um, it's it's not a, a regular drama in the sense that I haven't read it as an ancient Greek thing. So I don't know what their emotional reaction to this would be. They, mm. of course, had uh, both tragedies and comedies that were these things that really try to get into your psyche mm. and have you know go through catharsis. In the end, they really try to move you. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think that even in Plato's time, like that would have been the reaction of, of somebody who's reading his work to like be moved to tears. Um, there's definitely elements of, of humor and mm -hmm. there's a lot of humor in there. Um, the characters do go through, um, they can feel embarrassed, they can feel um, angry and so on. And he is trying to make it um, plausible to a degree. So, He's, he's not so much about character development because his characters are models. Actually, they don't change. So don't expect to go on uh, on um, on some journey to see how somebody who's speaking with Socrates actually learns something because that's on you. You're, you as the reader or us as the readers, we're supposed to undergo a change and understand what's at the center of uh, what it is that this dialogue centers on and understand the concept. Mm -hmm. Um so he's is not he couldn't be a great yeah he can't be said to be a novelist but for sure there's philosophy there because his whole um, probably as we understand it like his goal is to make you is to teach you how to learn critically and also understand something about the concept that's at the heart of um, of a dialogue mm -hmm. and. He does that by immersing you in this conversation where the models are consistent and they have motives and they have understandings that um, that make them act the way they act. So in that sense, he's very consistent. Like his his characters are very consistent, and you can follow them through and understand from that something um, that's outside the book about philosophy, which you 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 should embody in the end it's not uh to discuss it because he there is um not direct uh criticism i mean his characters criticize not plato but you can see there's criticism by certain characters 
on the ancient Athenian tendency to um, just talk about anything and just air opinions, put them in the air and call it philosophy, which that's not what it is. Philosophy is actually applying concepts and mm, attempt to mm. live well. And testing them in life, right? Yes. And I suppose just by having multiple characters and exploring ideas through their dialogues, that is a kind of dramatic device, as you were saying. And, and it involves the kind of perspective taking that we were describing earlier. Absolutely. I mean, he uses a lot of dramatic devices and they're actually clues in the dialogues. So you get something like I was just starting to read Symposium the other day and from the beginning, you get a character who's kind of uh, complaining about uh, exactly what I mentioned, because this was on my mind, the Athenian tendency to just pass the time talking <laughs> and call it philosophizing. Mm, um, mm. But then it turns out that this character is just asking somebody to tell him a story about what Socrates said, which is kind of the same activity. So once you realize the level of irony there, um, that he doesn't notice that he's doing what he's um, in words against, then that's a dramatic clue for you to pay attention to that thing and try to piece it together with something that uh, is probably going to uh, show up later. Mm, um, mm. Yeah, so there's there's a lot of, of that, like dramatic things that are not by any means um, ideas about how to live well. It's never didactic with Plato, never. Yeah, I love that. And that's something that I've been interested in over the past few years too, these kind of philosophies of life, eudaimonia, this idea of how, what's the best way to live, what what does flourishing entail or, or what does the good life entail? And to me, you know, if you, one of the problems with analytic philosophy is it restricts its own domain, you know, possibly to gain a greater level of certainty, but at the expense of aesthetics and ethics and all these other things that are <laughs> absolutely central to living a good life, right? Yeah, it's um, th there's so much to explore, I feel like. Uh, just as I said, just yesterday I recorded with Ivor and I was making the point and he was making, we were making the point that um, there isn't actually a good representation in writing of somebody who is living well uh, what mm. it's like subjectively. Um, ancient philosophers really said it's it's just um, not feeling an itch that you have to scratch, <laughs> basically, which is very much sits well with um, Buddhist uh, mm, thinking mm. that, you know, craving is what causes suffering and then not suffering is not craving and this is what you should do. Now, to us Westerners, it sounds very boring. <laughs> right, it's like almost like you have no motivation in life. If you don't have an itch, what are you living for? Right? It sounds <laughs> almost strange. So that's something I would really like to see in book form. Um, so uh, Lev Tolstoy, if you're hearing this, <laughs> and you're, we need you, we need you for one last book on that. I'd love mm. to see that. Uh, what put us in the shoes of somebody who actually is enjoying mental health? Mm -hmm. But you might think that he also doesn't have that much interest in the happy families, right? <laughs> Anna Karenina famously starts with that line about all happy families yeah. are alike, <laughs> but and all unhappy families are, you know, he's implicitly saying they're, they're unhappy in their own way, but also that that's more interesting somehow. <laughs> you know? 
<laughs> but that's something to overcome. That's something mm, that, mm. that that's exactly it. Don't we need to overcome this um this need for being interested all the yes. time? Because that kind of pulls us toward the, the story of of um the miserable people out there or the dysfunctional families. Of course that's more interesting. That's always more novel. Like mm. really what he's saying is that there is novelty and excitement in everything that's not. <laughs> um, that's not well, um, well, or sustainable, or well managed, or, or whatever, and um, it's it's very hard to entice people to try out living well in that sense. Uh, yes. It really is. Yeah, and it is a good question because when I think of the good life, and maybe this is just me being sort of quite Western, it would involve striving towards difficult goals and striving almost necessarily into i mean it comes it's related to this word strife right and it there's there's difficulty in it whether you attain the goals or not so it's not obvious to me that a life well lived and even a happy life necessarily is always going to be boring <laughs> you know what i mean like there's probably i i don't think we have too much risk of of life being boring in that kind of uh total lack of desire, total lack of perturbation, serenity and tranquility all the time. And, you know, <laughs> getting stuck in no. that kind of Buddhist yeah. or stoic thing that people seem worried about. You know, I think people who practice Buddhism or stoicism maybe do so because they have even more intense suffering and they bring it down to a manageable level. But most people that I observe doing that don't, don't become boring as a result, you know? Yeah, I mean, first of all, for I think for people who are in suffering, and I say that from personal experience, like earlier in my life, in times where you are in great suffering, then all you want is is to be um, unperturbed, right? Mm, and mm. this is this is actually um, in Epicureanism, this mm, is the mm. highest virtue, right? Is ataraxia. Ataraxia, yeah. Mm, mm. Uh, um, yeah, being not confused, not having mm. confusion. And um, and this is good. Also, the reason you're not bored is because things always, there is entropy, right? So health, yes. health is a process of actually trying to always to always go uh, back and forth, right? right? Mm, we discussed mm. it. We discussed it briefly before hitting record. But I mean, even if you even if you look at, at someone's body and then the necessity to um, to do what's right for the body at, at every time of day is going to be different. Like, mm, should I eat mm. now? Should I drink now? Um, so that's not boring. And then the thing that really makes it not boring is the fact that you're going to both meet a lot of people who don't enjoy mental health <laughs> and part of your mental health actually is um, depends on you doing the right thing, the just thing. And the just thing is going to be trying to help them with their issues. Mm. That's never boring. So you are dealing with, with that. And that's always a challenge because you have to understand somebody's psyche in order to use the terms in speech with them that they understand mm. in order to illuminate the parts of their psyche that are um, where there are unresolved problems so that they may iron them out and and live better lives. Yes. And also um, children who are not yet unhealthy but are in the process <laughs> of developing logos um, <laughs> and helping them develop it 
in a good way mm. rather than stunt its growth by giving them dogmata and all sorts of crazy opinions about about the world. Um, so that's super interesting. Mm, if mm. anybody's an educator, like how that is never boring. Yes. Um, so there are aspects of life that are inherently not boring because they, you have to employ your creativity, which to me is also the only sustainable source for pleasure. So a good life is not devoid of pleasure, but it is devoid of pleasures that actually harm you in the long run. Whereas mm. creativity, any creative act you you make um, is inherently pleasurable because there is novelty mm, mm, in mm. it. So we should uh, we should strive to be um, creative as much as possible. And solving our problems to keep being healthy necessitates creativity. So it's it's all good. Yes, <laughs> and I, I love that. And I guess what I'm also thinking is that. When we picture the sort of perfect Buddhist, we picture this meditation because that's, you know, a very important part of Buddhist practice and, and of Stoic practice for that matter. But of course, that's just part of the practice, right? Uh, the majority of, of it, unless you're going on, you know, a three-year retreat or something, is still in life. You're, the majority of your day is, is in action. And so it's neither that purely contemplative mode, nor the maybe sort of e easy or cliche view of the philosopher, which is just sitting there thinking about things, but, right. but somewhere in action in uh, praxis, is it? Or <laughs> pragma? Yes, yes absolutely. Uh, praxis and um, another way to say that you are being mentally healthy is that you're engaging in you praxis, doing mm, well, mm, literally. Mm. Um, yeah, this is so true. Have you ever fallen for the trap of kind of seeing enlightenment as this um, point of getting to be uh, a person in a still picture that doesn't really change anymore? <laughs> I think for most of my life, my suffering was probably too intense for me to get anywhere near that. But I have certainly done a lot of meditation. And the goal was never, at least for me, to be free from all desire. That didn't seem like a very attainable goal, but just to kind of rebalance things to allow action. And I think, yeah, that, you know, maybe the, there's this idea of allostasis, which is sort of like homeostasis as you're in motion. And maybe mm -hmm. we have this idea that, you know, that, that it's normal to sort of sit at a desk or, or do knowledge work and type into a computer and read books and, and write things online or whatever. But maybe, you know, that's the abnormal state and being in physical motion and in active interaction with the world and with your community is actually the kind of normal state. And it's and it's being alone or being being immobile that's unusual, you know? Yeah, I think I think both are natural consequences, depending on what the circumstances are. I think that once we are kind of live in this society where we are generally well fed all the time, mm. it's uh, natural to go into rumination and and that um, <laughs> type of thing. But yeah, no, it's it's striking me as uh, as very sane what you're saying that you've been um, attracted not to that because I remember myself as an 18 year old telling my uh, biggest sister who's 15 years older than me, that no, I, I, I'm seriously going to become the second Buddha. 
wow <laughs> amazing <laughs> and she's like and she's like yeah i was there she she would have been 33 at the time i'm 35 now so mm. i actually made a mental note to myself oh that's funny i'm her <laughs> age now and um and yeah, it's uh, magically also left my psyche, this image that I could, but I was very fixed, um, fixated on this idea of actually reaching enlightenment as, mm. you know, which is what I think a lot of the gurus that have a lot of the gurus in the bad sense. I know guru just means teacher and that's like a neutral word, but a lot of the um, harmful gurus that we know and we learn to associate the word with, yes, that's, that's their big promise right is i'm going to take you outside of this realm of like going up and down like you're going to get off the roller coaster for good mm. and um and be in nirvana which is completely unattainable even mm, mm. logically because of the dependency of pleasure on novelty it's just you can't be in bliss yes. all the time mm, um mm. even if you reach a state where you are blissful at some point, you're going to find that you're actually putting in a <laughs> lot of effort um, in an in an attempt to fight it off. And then that's a fight. <laughs> yes. I think maybe rather than the contemplative, you know, com contentment where you just meditate through <laughs> all day, every day, or, or reach enlightenment after which you're never bothered as if it's a kind of state to be attained and then you never look back or something. I did a lot of the searching in the kind of intellectual realm where I was really reading everything I could get my hands on. That comes back to the beginning of the conversation. But that it's interesting because I do think that if you remain in that mode of just reading all the time, you can get a bit lost, but it didn't really feel like it felt like I was still on a search. And in the end, I felt like I was getting closer to something. I, I still feel like that. <laughs> and so I'm not sure, you know, uh, even though I've just said that the, you know, the intellectual way, if you just kind of stay in this realm of reading and writing, that can be a failure mode. At the same time, I, uh, yeah, I, I still hold out like a lot of hope. And I, I, I do really value what I've read and what I've done, I suppose, to a great degree and, and the meditation. So I don't, I, I, I think it's maybe a case of getting the balance right, but to me, they all do relate to action somehow, or they can relate to action at least. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I've, I found myself being less interested in, in reading mm. novels mm. specifically. Interesting. Has this ever occurred to you? Yeah, I'm certainly reading less fiction than I was a few decades ago, than, than I was in my youth, for sure. And it's a good question of why. I think, in a certain sense, where I see myself now is trying to unearth or, or kind of give birth to um, philosophy as I see it. I do see philosophy as kind of dialectical, you know, throughout history. And so it's never settled in, an, in some sense. And so I do want to make some kind of contribution to it. And there's something about being in that mode that leads me to read nonfiction and, and philosophy in particular and history and, you know, other kind of studies 
We could also talk about science and how I see that relating to to these other other disciplines. Whereas, yeah, yeah whereas at the moment, um, I have been reading less novels. But I'm curious about you. Like, uh, did you stop at a certain point, and was it a conscious decision, or is it something you you've just found yourself reading less, uh, reading fewer novels? Mm, I think um, I think it's just that maybe it's it's the understanding that we talked about before how these great writers give you the ability to uh, to kind of um to understand that whatever idea you have philosophical idea you start to run with it and really um chart a, a possible or a plausible trajectory for this mm. is where it's going to take you to the point where at some point you might not need to read a lot of different mm. trajectories of different people where it yes. kind, kind of becomes um, masturbatory in the sense <laughs> that it's, it's not about things that are necessarily relevant to your life. So it is a, a meta skill that I think you can, you can learn and then apply for yourself without the need to, to hook yourself up to um, up to a novel. Mm, uh, that's mm. what I think. But I, I also agree very much with what you're saying. Uh, if I understood correctly, like when you get into the mode of trying to contribute more rather than being uh, strictly a, a consumer mm. of ideas, but also somebody who's in the the discussion of the of the hive mind. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, I, I agree with that um, a lot too, and. Uh, I think once you're in that discussion, it's also in a sense, um, yeah, I don't know. There is something very exciting about being part of a discussion rather than being a spectator. Yes. And it's an interesting idea that maybe fiction, as we were saying, it can present many different views within a single novel. And so it might be that at a certain point in life, when you're doing this exploration of what's out there, that it's a very efficient way to learn at least superficially, what is out there. And then once you've got the kind of lay of the land, which you might get through these novels or, or some of the, at least some of the great novels are very, they present philosophical themes very well, then you might want to go deeper. And to go deeper, you end up, wind, you wind up in philosophy somehow again. I'm not sure. <laughs> Yeah, I think for me, I'm trying to develop this intuition about what book is really worth my time mm. because I'm very actively seeking the books which I have a strong suspicion that they're really going to put a dent into my um, put a dent in my uh, beloved theories, right? Mm. Or the mm. way I see the world. And I think when you're young, you just, it's just easy. Like a lot of things can be surprising to you, but today I can kind of. Uh, think of just a, a few people who have really um, put a spin on things that that I that I was thinking before. So just recently, I finished uh, Helgoland by Carlo Rovelli ah, yes. on quantum physics. Um, so I find, for example, that quantum physics is a is a is a, a very interesting field because it is really the frontier of science, or one of the frontiers where scientists are just like looking at things and their hypotheses are just as weird as, as some of the <laughs> stuff that's in the holy books, right? Mm, um, mm. Things seem miraculous and whatnot. 
Um, and so I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and, and read that because that picked my interest when he says that somehow uh, reality is really uh, just this kind of interplay between things and and a thing doesn't have properties unless it's a, a, unless it's in interaction with another thing. Mm, There's mm. A, a thing that isn't in interaction doesn't have any properties. Mm, so that's mm. fascinating. I go and read that. Um, yeah, so I'm really actively looking for these things that are really going to show me uh, some things that are going to challenge my beliefs. And at some point in life, I think that's not something I expect a novel to do for me. Mm, I may be mm. wrong. I may be wrong. Um, I don't know. What do you think? It's a great question. And there are some novels that I really want to return to, including Middlemarch, because some of them are about aging, you know, and about what happens mm. to idealism as, as it matures. So, which it was sort of what I was saying, you know, that this, this led me to believe maybe at a young age that my life was going to have many stages <laughs> and that I was going to have different viewpoints at, at each of those. And maybe that was mm -hmm. a learning from those books, but I would also love to know, I've certainly felt that when I have gone back to books that I read when I was younger, they make a very different kind of impression on me. And so I do hope to return to, to many of these and see how they strike me now. I've, I've, had cause to flip through parts of the magic mountain or war and peace or, or vanity fair at, at various times. And I do have a different relationship to them as I age. So I think it, it will be interesting to explore new novels as well as return to old ones with a new perspective. Yeah, I think I think that I tried at some point kind of read excerpts or uh, whenever I just stumbled upon the book uh, anywhere, uh, something by Herman Hesse. I can't remember if it's like Siddhartha or something mm -hmm. like that. I think that's a prime example of books that are just perfect when you're <laughs> coming of age. And I, I don't think they're very impressive. I almost, mm. uh, if you approach them as an adult after having read them. Mm -hmm. And I think some books are even, you know, I would not recommend a 30-year-old <laughs> read Siddhartha. It's probably not, uh, just not the right time for this <laughs> book, right? Mm. So maybe I should be much better about looking out for novels or other works of fiction that are... Um, at least I don't know who to trust when mm -hmm. I when I approach that, but to look for the books that are for, um, yeah, that are for me at this point. But maybe I've lost touch a little bit with the work of uh, fiction and novels. Mm. And is Helgoland is that a kind of nonfiction work? I, I've heard of it, but not not read it yet. Yeah, yeah, it's it's nonfiction. Mm. He's a physicist, um, and he's he's writing very well. Sometimes these books are not well written it is engaging and i i personally like his style because he's he's far from being just um a lab rat himself somebody who just spent all his uh, he was a hippie and took acid and um <laughs> writes about that so i really appreciate him but uh it's it's well written for sure yeah i read um the order of time which i really enjoyed but also by carlo rovelli and mm -hmm. that has led me to read a bit of Einstein, actually, just some short pieces that he highly recommends that people read. And that's kind of informed another view that I have that relates to this topic, which is just about what 
communication means within the sciences. Uh, in particular, he recommends, I think it's geometry. Is it geometry and experience? Or it might be relativity and the problem of space, which are two essays by uh, Einstein. And what I'm struck by is that Einstein is just a brilliant writer. He's so clear, <laughs> basically. And this right. is uh, something that struck me when I was I was reading Darwin's Origin of Species last year. And he is just a phenomenal stylist. And, hmm. you know, it's almost, it relates to this question that we were discussing, which is, you know, in some cases you may get a philosopher who has a way of viewing the world like Schopenhauer does. And it's incredibly powerful, but it also takes a lot of work to construct that worldview and see what the world would look like were you to adopt that philosophy. Whereas Tolstoy takes that philosophy and literally builds the world for you. And then you get to see how it operates, you know, right. in that fictional work. And I sometimes think of Darwin as falling into this same category, which is that he is both the kind of generator and popularizer of a new way of seeing history. And not everything in his views is entirely novel. He had some kind of precursors. But it's like, why does he become the one that is so effective at spreading this kind of view of, of evolution? And I think one of the reasons is that he is almost first and foremost a communicator. Like, I think you, it might sound odd to call him a storyteller, but there is a narrative tension in The Origin of Species, which is kind of saying... It's looking at all this evidence and saying, here's the standard interpretation, but what if it's not like that at all, you know? And there is like a kind of forward motion to it in an odd way, even though there's, it, you couldn't say that it's novelistic in any real sense. At the same time, you could say that it has dozens of characters because he corresponded with hundreds and hundreds of other scientists and he presents their views in such a concise way that, you know, that act of synthesis and summary and just concise explication you know some of the great novelists have that in terms of saying you know exploring a philosopher's work through a character you know without perhaps ever using that philosopher's name and yet you can you know to, to know that philosopher really well you can kind of build a character out of that, maybe the way that Plato is doing. And I think it's, I think Tolstoy does this. And I think, I think George Eliot does this as well, which is, you know, <laughs> kind of dramatization of these ideas. And I think Darwin is kind of doing that in a strange sense too, and, and pitting these scientists against them, each other, even though he never writes dialogue, if you know, it's, it's not that novelistic, mm. but. Yeah, that's a really interesting thing to to consider because science writing um, is so inaccessible. Like the the actual science mm, writing mm. and popularizers are so so um, important mm, in getting mm. people to understand. And once a, a person who's uh, good at that does it, the the effect is amazing on the population. Mm, and mm. you're right, you you can't do that without storytelling. Um, and to tie everything together, you know, I think that. Philosophy is 100% a science. It's just a strange science in the sense. First of all, we should note that, you know, for Stoics, they had three branches mm. of philosophy. 
logic, ethics, and um, and um, oh, metaphysics, on, or <laughs> and physics, and physics, mm-hmm. of course. Yeah, uh, logic, um, ethics, and physics. So mm-hmm. physics, what we know as the, as the study of nature, to them was subordinate to philosophy, the study of living physis, well. right, or physis. And um, uh, yeah, physis, physis is um, is nature. nature. Basically, mm. it's the universe, everything. It's what Spinoza calls natura. Mm. Um, and he says God is nature. Yes. Um, so in that sense. Um, and of course, it includes us. And philosophy is, is a science because... Um, it has all the components of a science. You have um, you have explanations for things that you then test out to see if you can predict things, if mm. you can kind of navigate where you want mm. in life, mm. and you get feedback. And the thing is, we have incomplete information. That doesn't, but we but we have incomplete information about, about everything, everything because yes. of course we know know it's it's. Uh, physically impossible to build a computer that will that will compute everything mm. in, in the same time, right? It would have to also compute itself and so on. That that's just not going to stop ever. Yes. Um, and, and science is is done with uh, incomplete information. So usually in life, people don't have um, a good mental framework of reality, a good enough mental framework of reality, they think the information is too incomplete, so Mm. you can't do science, but that's not quite true. And um, you should have explanations on things, apply them, yes, and then get the feedback. see if they work. (laughs) And see if they work. And Mm. in philosophy, the see if they work part is is really that sense, well, am I living without internal strife or Mm. internal conflict? Mm -hmm. That's it. So that's why I advise people to really take notes, stop at certain points in their life and look back and ask, well, have I experienced inner conflict in the past week, month, whatever? That's a, that's a really good way of, of checking in uh, with your mental health. Mm, I love that. And it's reminded me, I, I, was, I had this thought a few months ago, actually, I was rereading some of my journals and it was just about the relationship of theory to practice or, or quote unquote fact, just, just experience. Right. And I was thinking, you know, a theory is an attempt to test whether you've done enough observation, because if you've done enough observation, you might have a prediction about how things will go in the future. But if you, I think there's this danger of kind of mistaking the map for the territory a lot of the time and that, you know, you live in this world of theories and you forget to ever sort of test them. So I suppose yeah. I've been kind of trying to relate those two things and, and just think that, yeah, as, as you get into philosophy or science or, or any other endeavor, it's important to have theories and, and it's absolutely critical to form abstractions and generalizations but it's also important to test those generalizations against the specific cases because we never encounter, you know, the idea of something. We never encounter a theory. We only encounter individuals or particular cases, right? Right. There's always context. Mm. Uh, it's we're always embedded in nature. So I think that's a, a worthwhile um, kind of point to make is the difference between knowledge and understanding. I think Mm. knowledge is this static thing that you can kind of look at 
and it's completely abstract. Understanding is actually done moment to moment. Mm. You don't understand the subject in, in theory. Understanding is actually bringing that theory or knowledge um, into play as your life is, is going on, matching it onto reality, see the fittingness there, mm. and then um, in that process also applying whatever concepts you have to actually change the course of history, right? Mm. And and um, and navigate, steer, steer your boat wherever you want it to be. Um, so understanding is already an active thing; it's not passive. Mm. It's technique, not episteme. Would you say, or is it more like it's? Um, yeah, well, exactly. Uh, any any techne is made of episteme and epitheduma. Mm. Uh, so. Uh, the- theory like uh, knowledge and and actual actual pursuing it or practice mm, right so, it- so theory and practice and that's what makes an art and art mm, and mm. also a techne should also have a product mm, mm. so in the case of living well you want the product to be uh, a temporary regression to the mean where the mean is mental health mm, right mm. Um, and this is what you you want to do, kind of go around and always try to balance things out so that you might live the most sustainable life that are free from any itches and and therefore suffering. Mm, um, mm. And of course, on top of that, there is the added bonus of actually enjoying pleasures when they come your way. They're just not a focus. So you're still out there enjoying the company of friends, enjoying the company of your spouse. Uh, enjoying the fact that you are acting creatively throughout life. You're enjoying things. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, that's not what you uh, aim for necessarily. So, um, and it's it's a debate whether this is actually a technique, <laughs> whether living well is a technique. Mm-hmm. Like I can frame that as the product. Other people would say that there is no product. So maybe we need to call it something different but in any case the yes there's the theory and practice are both aspects of 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 an art Mm, mm, mm. yeah and i i yeah so it's a kind of where i am right now just wanting to in a certain sense practice philosophy but as we've said i think of it in dialectical terms so i think that you know the practice of philosophy is not just reading these old texts but discussing them and so bringing them to life in conversation and through practical application or, or technical <laughs> application if you if you want and trying things out seeing what works seeing what leads to maybe an attenuation of suffering since I think you and I agree that it's it's unlikely that we're ever going to extinguish it uh, for good <laughs> and we might not even wish to <laughs> in a certain sense uh, and then trying to figure out what kind of stories might lead, you know, supposing we do through conversation and practice hit upon some kind of wisdom. What's, what's the word for wisdom that you've, um, the practical wisdom that, uh, we discussed before. Oh, well, um, yeah, yeah. You don't like that uh, translation. At (laughs) at least, um, well, it's, it's, it's inadequate because it's, um, no, there is no better translation. Okay, so I'm, I'm okay with people trying. It's actually not. Mm. And not what is the word again? Remind me. <laughs> so the, the word is uh, phronesis, phronesis, which is um, really if Plato is analyzed correctly and so on, which is not done by most people, but that's 
um, really the activity of maintaining health. Mm, it's it's mm. the activity of living well is phronesis. Mm, mm. Um, yeah, whereas uh, Sophia, which is usually translated as, as wisdom, is really the virtue or the aspect of living well that means uh, knowing good from bad mm. or knowing the, the good as a concept. So something like um, discernment rather than the kind of act of living well. Right, right, yeah. Like some, some, something like the theory behind, mm. behind living well. Yeah, correct. Um, yeah, it's, it's really interesting what you say. And definitely, I think, I think the conclusion also, if we are to be um, productive in our discussion here is to also think for ourselves, and I'm not doing this nearly enough, but to try your hand at writing fiction, yes. right? I mean, that, that should be a good, um, a good way to, to see, because for these writers, I'm sure it has aided their thinking about these things because they could um, run simulations in their own mind mm. and, and find interest in them. And then when they had something that they thought was uh, share worthy, they, they went ahead and did that masterfully. Mm. Yeah. And I have done sort of two drafts of this novel, which I <laughs> shelved actually at the start of the first lockdown. And it was because it was very dialogue heavy. And I found that I couldn't write dialogue while I didn't have access to conversation. And while I didn't have, you know, conversations going on around me as, as I usually did in a city in like London, and mm -hmm. so kind of being cut off from that lifeblood of just speech and, and the oral tradition maybe made it, I found very difficult to, to work on fiction, but I guess that's my overall kind of understanding of what I'm up to, which is first philosophy, which is not just me, uh, bring myself in <laughs> Schopenhauer and, and then, you know, thinking through it on my own, but actually hopefully bringing it to life in conversation and in practice and then trying to find from within that stories that might again transmit some of what I've learned or what we have learned ideally <laughs> if it's going to be you know a kind of conversation or community endeavor if that makes sense yeah no that's beautiful and then I, I love the fact that we that we're kind of coming to an end with a challenge to ourselves to to do something like that. It's um, it's it's so open ended, um, and and I love I love the fact that it's an invitation for mm. us maybe mm. to move away from having this conversation right now to producing something of value that's not just the the talk about and. Um, yeah, it's 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 a it's a great point to to arrive at. Yes, like. and the creative acts, like <laughs> you were saying, bringing the novelty into that you know aspects of philosophy that that might not be there for for everyone. You know, absolutely, absolutely. Well, and thank God for podcasting because at least we're able to to have a product, mm. and it is it does live um, for posterity. Mm, mm. Yeah, Brian. Uh, this this has been so much fun and thank you so much for bringing up this idea because it made me kind of um, dust off a lot of the a lot of the literary <laughs> knowledge and feelings that I have but which I don't get to really discuss anymore and the beautiful idea that you know it could communicate philosophy better than some of the um, greatest philosophers 
um, do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it may be, you know, many of our oldest works are, are works of fiction, poetry, the epics and things like that. And so in a certain sense, it's the most durable form, <laughs> you know, it's not just, uh, <laughs> it's not just entertainment, I suppose. It's also, you know, it, it does, it interacts with our minds in a, in a quite important way, I think. But this has been um, an absolute pleasure, Hale. Yeah, same here. Thanks so much for coming. And I'm really looking forward to whatever other conversation we're going to have. Mm. Yes, I look forward to it too. Thank you so much. Thank you.